Hi, I'm Matthew Dix, and I'm about to have a productive conversation with Mike Vardy. Only put off until tomorrow what you are willing to die having left undone. That quote from Pablo Picasso is the first words I read in Matthew Dick's book, Someday Is Today, 22 Simple, Actionable Ways to Propel Your Creative Life. And that's why I'm glad that Matthew is on the program today. He is the author of nine other books beyond the one I just mentioned. He's a best-selling novelist, nationally recognized storyteller, and award-winning elementary school teacher. Matthew teaches storytelling and communications at universities, corporate workplaces, and community organizations, and he's won multiple Moth Grand Slam story competitions and, together with his wife, created the organization Speak Up to help others share their stories. They also co-host the Speak Up Storytelling Podcast, so you should subscribe to that one once you're done listening to this. And he lives in Connecticut with his family. I really enjoyed this conversation. I think Matthew and I have a lot in common. We dive into somebody who inspired me to do the work that I do now and quit my job. That person gets mentioned in this book and we talk about it. We also dig into this idea of perfectionism. We talk about performative productivity and we talk about what he calls his 100-year-old plan. And we talk about oatmeal. But let's get to that conversation, including the oatmeal part. Here's a productive conversation with Matthew Dix. Enjoy. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me today on the program. It's I'm, you know, I think we have a lot in common after going through your book Someday Is Today, 22 simple actionable ways to propel your creative light, life rather, and light probably too. Uh, so so I mean as I was going through it there, you know, some of the things that came to mind right away is your love of satire. Right. You really kind of and you've done I mean, I have a background in comedy. I've done sketch. I've done improv, done, uh, you know, I've done stand up as well. Um, And when I started my productivity journey, I actually did it as a satirical take on the getting things done methodology. I was playing a Stephen (laughs) Colbert-esque character. We called it instead of getting things done or GTD, we called it effing the dog or FDD, but it was EFF which was short for efforting. And I, lo and behold, came the, became the very thing I was parodying after a while. Uh, let's, can we <laughs> talk a little bit about satire? Because I think there, th- that is, to me, one of the gateways to knowledge and understanding and just depth of, of um, you know, of, of, again, expertise in, in, in an area that you focus on. Yeah, I, you know, I think the thing that satire does, at least for me, is it strips away all the nonsense and allows you to look at things in a very objective, very clear, and very pointed way. So, you know, I'm, I'm famous for saying not everything is a thing, mm-hmm. you know, or not everything needs to be a thing. And that's sort of like the opposite of satire, like making something out of nothing is kind of ridiculous to me. So I like the way that when you're looking at something satirically, you can really find its essence. And that often is very funny and also very illuminating. Yeah, yeah. Some of the best takes on things that we struggle with as a society or the challenges that we face, comedians can open up the doors to that and make us think about it. Because what what they do, and you've probably seen the movie Comedian, Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, you know, the idea of making the ordinary extraordinary, the extraordinary ordinary is kind of what, you know, I mean, I, I went and saw Bill Burr in concert in June in Portland 
2022. And just some of the ways he expresses things, I may not necessarily agree with everything he says, but he makes, I mean, there is that perspective, um, which leads me to the idea of oatmeal that you talk about. So, so you actually talk about the book about oatmeal and being consistent. It's funny. I had oatmeal for breakfast today. Reading your book got me back into making instant pot overnight oats. Why did oatmeal make its way into this book? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I just had it for lunch <laughs> moments ago, literally moments ago. The last thing I did before clicking on to talk to you was to wash the bowl. Uh, so, you know, oatmeal for me actually has been kind of a wonderful thing. I went to the doctor and uh, I found out that I was uh, slightly elevated in my cholesterol. I wasn't in the bad range yet, but she said, you're getting there. So um, we might want to think about medication or a change in diet. And I asked what the change in diet was. And she said, well, you'd have to eat foods that would help your cholesterol. And I said, give me the list. And on the list was oatmeal. And so that appealed to me. I like oatmeal. I also really like the fact that it takes about two minutes to cook and about three minutes to eat. And it's rather filling. And so for, I don't know, 500 now consecutive days, probably, you know, with the exception of an occasional weekend when my wife is like, we are going to lunch, we're not staying home. I have oatmeal for lunch, you know, and as a result, I lowered my cholesterol 50 points. My doctor couldn't believe it. She said, I wish everyone would be as crazy as you are. But also, it takes me five minutes to have lunch every day. And I'm not opposed to people sitting down and having a meal with another person. I think that's a lovely thing. But if I'm not going to have a social interaction while I'm eating, my goal is always, let's get this out of the way so I can be more productive, so I can get the things done that I actually want to get done. So if I'm going to dinner, I can spend three hours eating a meal with you if we're having a good time. But if I'm sitting at my desk at school, correcting papers or trying to get a plan ready or even working on a book on my free time, I don't need to spend any time, you know, invested in a big lunch when oatmeal is actually exceptionally healthy for me and quick. You know, you bring up the writing process to working on a book and throughout the book you talk about, you know, not only uh, when you write, which is, again, we have this in common. Like I have drafts on my iPhone and wherever I'm going on a walk or something like that, if something comes to mind, here's, here's a question I have for you though, because we live in a world that, uh, when you do when you do stuff like that when you you know talk out loud to your phone let's say you're dictating something or there it, the ego plays a really interesting role in that because you know until you get comfortable in your own skin or and I mean again maybe because we've gone on stage and and been able to do that it doesn't affect us as much but I mean even still like there have been moments where I'm like ooh should I be doing this right now? You know, like, what if I just took a break? Like, there's that part of your brain that I think always tries to, it, it, it's that that part that just wants you to survive, doesn't really care about thriving all that much, just wants you to get by. And how how have you combated that? Because it's, you've done a lot. I mean, you and you're still doing a lot. I mean, like you said, like, we're recording this while you're in your lunch break, getting ready to, to, to teach, and you're still doing all this other stuff. How do you combat that party brain? Because I think the listener right now is sitting there going, it must be nice for these guys who just like, you know, they fill these gaps with time. It must seem really rigid. Like, why don't they just take a break? But it, there's more to it than that, right? Yeah, there's a lot to it. And, you know, part of it is my sort of hundred year old philosophy, which is if I ask the hundred year old version of me, the one that's sort of lying on his deathbed, how does he want me to spend lunch breaks? 
is he happy that I'm sort of chilling and taking my time and slowly eating a meal that will ultimately be forgettable? Or is he happy that I'm eating quickly and then getting to that book or spending time with a friend or, you know, chatting with my wife on the phone during lunch? All of those things are the things that the hundred year old version of me wants to be, wants me to be doing now because that person understands how precious time is. I also think it's just a flipping of the script a little bit. You know, if I'm walking around and talking to myself because I'm practicing a story or recording something for later on and people are looking at me like I'm crazy, I just know that I'm better than them. <laughs> I just assume, <laughs> I just think to myself, you're all average and I'm the one who's not average here. Like, you know, I'm one of the things I love to do is I basically sprint through parking lots because I'm always fascinated by how slowly people walk through a parking lot as if this is a place to be, mm -hmm. as if this is the place they should be strolling or even the grocery store. I'm fascinated how people seem to want to spend time in these places. And I know I look like a crazy person when I'm running through a parking lot and sometimes like, you know, really moving through a grocery store at a speed that is not normal. And I know I get looks all the time from people, but when they look at me, I just think, well, they're looking at me and they think I'm crazy, but what they can't see through the crazy is, I'm just going to end up in a better place than you're going to end up today because I'm spending less time in parking lots and grocery stores and more time with my children and on the golf course and with my wife and with the work that I care about. So I think you just have to like assume you're better. Is, right. Is my advice all the time. <laughs> well, and I think it's the other, I mean, the human cloud cartoon about, you know, what we think people are looking at versus what they're actually looking at too. You've just said like, well, even if they're looking at it, I don't care. Like it does, you know, right. at the end of the day, it's funny. You bring up like the idea of I'm better than you. I'm, um, I'm a pro wrestling fan as well. I can take a lot of story from that. There's a wrestler named MJF. And he um, and he talks about he's wrestling for AEW right now, and he says, uh, "I'm MJF, and I'm better than you." And he like he and he acts that character twenty four seven, like he is that character, and because that's part of the he's acting out who he is one hundred percent of the time. Now, I want to jump ahead in the book. You talk about performative productivity, which I think from a, from a vantage point of of the work that I do, it's this idea of um, being busy, you know, without actually like being truly productive. It's, it's that again, back to Seinfeld. That's that Seinfeld episode of George saying, you know, well, if you, if you, if you're at your desk and you're just looking intently at something or you're walking around holding envelopes, people think you're doing something right. So can we talk a bit about the, why you say that performative productivity should be left to a certain type of person and not yourself? <laughs> Starting an online business or expanding your physical storefront online has never been easier thanks to Shopify. This global commerce platform supports you at every stage of your business journey. From launching your online shop to managing a million orders, Shopify is there to simplify and accelerate your growth. It's not just about selling products. So Shopify helps you manage every aspect of your business with their all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. But that's not all. Shopify helps you convert visitors into customers with the best converting checkout process on the internet, which performs up to 36% better than other platforms. And now a special offer for my listeners. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash timecrafting, all lowercase. Whether you're just starting out or looking to scale up, Shopify is the perfect partner for your business. Are you a small business owner struggling to find the right talent for your team? I've been there and I know how challenging it can be. That's why I recommend LinkedIn Jobs. It's not just any job board. It's a community where you can find professionals who are the perfect fit for your business, many of whom aren't checking other job sites. 
In fact, 70% of LinkedIn users aren't visiting other leading job sites, making LinkedIn your best bet for finding top talent. With LinkedIn jobs, you can post your job and reach qualified candidates quickly. 86% of small businesses find a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And now you can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation. That's right, for free. Don't miss out on finding top talent. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash conversation today. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> yeah, I think that the biggest obstacle in sort of performative productivity is that it holds you back. Because mm. if you're performing... That means that you sort of are setting the stage for yourself. So, you know, that is like the writer who tells me they can only write in a Starbucks from 10 to 2, you know, and they need to have a chai latte. That's really them just imagining what writing looks like rather than what it really is. Right. You know, I, I was working with someone who told me I can't really exercise because I don't have any time after work. And I said, well, I do all my push-ups and sit-ups, you know, while I'm making my kids breakfast. So, like, I cut an apple and I do 50 push-ups and then I pour some cereal and do 50 push-ups, And they said, that sounds terrible. And I said, what is the difference between doing your push-ups at six o'clock in the morning when making, you know, in between making breakfast and doing it at six o'clock at night when you're in a gym? And that's really the difference. Right. I need to go to a gym. I need to dress a certain way, right? I need to swipe a card. I need the music playing. And all of that, if you strip it away and you stop worrying about like what you're what it looks like to be productive. You can find all these spaces where product productivity can happen rather easily as long as you aren't caught with the trappings of it. And you get, you get your cardio done in parking lots too. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> that would be ideal. Unfortunately, those parking lots are not as large as um, I might hope, but yes. <laughs> um, something else we have in common. Uh, and I've never ever heard anyone mention this person in a book before. Jonathan Colton comes up in this book. Now, the story oh, I'm going to yeah. share real quick with people is that when I was doing the productivity parody stuff, I was still working at Costco. So I was still doing that, uh, which is how I kept my pace up. Walking the warehouse floor consistently, uh, I tend to walk that way still to this day if I'm not walking in a deliberate fashion just to go for a walk, right? To the point where everyone's like, could you slow down a bit? It just became my natural cadence. Um, when I realized that I really had a passion for not just the, the productivity stuff, but also the comedy stuff I was doing. We were doing a lot of performance stuff. We went to San Francisco sketch fest and a bunch of other things. It was an area that I really wanted to explore. Um, I wrote him a letter. Now this is back when he did the 52 podcasts or 52 songs in a week, rather code monkey yeah. is what comes up in here. And that song is still in my, uh, it's, it's, it's a favorite song on my Spotify playlist. Um, I, uh, my son is named Colton, C-O-L-T-O-N, not, we dropped the U. Um, and I wrote him a letter. This is again, years ago, almost 15 years ago now. Um, and he said, uh, quit your job, but don't tell your wife. I told you to quit your job because he did the same thing. He was a software and he was a software and worked in the software industry and he yeah. decided, you know, to go down the musical path. So, can we talk about like the song Code Monkey? I need you to kind of introduce it, but then also how it fits into this book. I know how it does, but it's really interesting because it's a first off, it's it's a half chapter, so it's a really short story. Um, but again, like to know that you've that there's some simpatico there between Jonathan Colton and you and me is is pretty pretty awesome. 
Yeah. So I actually featured Code Monkey in one of my novels. Uh, and to put lyrics in a novel is actually exceptionally challenging. Uh, you often can't do it. I had to do the same thing you did. I wrote to him. I actually know someone who knew him. So I went through a friend who knew him and he generously said, of course, put all of my songs in your book if you want. I don't care, which makes him a wonderful person to yes. begin with. And so, you know, I've been sort of obsessed with that song for a long time. It's featured in a novel, but it makes me crazy because the character in the novel or the character in the book, sorry, the character in the song <laughs> who is in the novel of the book, yeah. the character featured in Code Monkey, the, the guy Code Monkey, he's trapped in a job he doesn't want with a boss who he doesn't like and doesn't like him. And he's staring at a girl in reception who he can't get the courage to, to ask out on a date, essentially. And there's a line in there that essentially says, someday, you know, someday all of these things will work out for me. And I hate it because I just hear the word someday all the time. And it's the word that causes people to do nothing until they die. That's essentially what happens to most human beings on the planet they have dreams, big, grandiose dreams, and sometimes small dreams. And they say, someday I'm going to do it. And then ultimately what they do is they run out of some days where they get too old to be able to do it anymore. You know, someday I'm going to climb this mountain and suddenly you're 76 and your knees aren't going to allow you to do it anymore. One of my clients actually is working on a vegetable garden in her backyard. That is the goal we're working on for her. She's dreamt of a vegetable garden for 22 years, and now she's finally doing it. She constantly said, someday I'm going to have a vegetable garden. And now that she's working with me, she's come to understand, my God, what have I done? Like, this is not even a hard goal to achieve. And I've been doing someday on, on this project. So Code Monkey breaks my heart every time because I know that Code Monkey is never going to ask the girl out. He's never going to escape the job. He's never going to make his dreams come true. And he will be what most people are, which is a person trapped in a life they didn't really dream of until one day that life ends. And that's a terrible sort of negative thing to say, but it is, I think, the truth for most people who don't make conscious decisions about the direction they're headed and the way they spend their time. You've listened to the acoustic version of that song versus the... Oh, yes. That's the sad... Like, when you listen to the acoustic version, you're like, oh, like, because it's disguised in this upbeat kind of like, you know, funky kind of beat. And then you're like, you listen to the lyrics and you're right. And I have to wonder... If it's not about Jonathan, like what, he, like that, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know, but I'm sure he's probably said something about, it, but I mean, I mean, that was him to a degree in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he did what most people dream of, which is he took a chance and went for the thing he wanted and chased it. And that's not even to say you're ever going to get there. Right. You know, I, I work with lots of writers who want to publish novels. And I say, the first goal should be to want to write a novel. My first novel that I wrote, I never thought it would be published, but I knew I had written a novel. And even back then, that was 12 years ago, I said, I wrote a novel. I am better now than all the people who say they will write a novel, but never will. So I've already achieved what I thought to be greatness. I never thought it would go any further than that. I've gotten lucky over time and managed to publish several. But if all I had done was written that book that everyone else claims to will do someday and don't, that would have been wonderful for me. Truly, I, I celebrated the completion of that novel as everyone should when they complete a task of some kind like that. You've got uh, something uh, in, in the book as well, which I love, and it reminded me of another quote. So you've got like, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. That's, that's what comes up. But uh, it, which reminds me of a quote from Steinbeck's book, East of Eden. 
now that you don't have to be perfect, you can be good. So it's yeah. it's a really interesting because one is, is is almost you don't realize that you don't need perfection. The other one is, oh, okay, to your point about like I'm gonna write the book. Like it doesn't have to be perfect. The conditions don't have to be perfect, all that. Why what role do you think perfection plays in productivity that people need to get past? And is it is it a a bias that that is sinister to a point or to or is it just subtle? Like where does it fit in? Because it's to me, I mean, I've fallen victim, a lot of people have to this idea of like it's just gotta be just so. Um, and it, it's either, it's either, it's gotta be perfect or I have to perfect this. Right. And so it, the derivative is still there. Right. Yeah. I think it's a double-edged sword. I think that, I think that sometimes perfection is simply the excuse for procrastination. Right. It's simply, I don't have to do it because it's not going to be perfect. So I can wait. People love to think about may, reaching a goal. And I always say thinking about it, you don't get any credit. It accomplishes nothing. So part of it is it's an excuse to not do the thing. But I think on the other side of that sword, the other edge is that I do believe there are people who are so worried about what other people will think about the thing they're making or the thing they're doing that they allow perfection to stop them from doing it. The concern that the world will not see them as worthy as they produce this thing, which is why I don't like that phrase. You know, for my book, I say, um, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. I don't like that because I don't think it even has to be good. I say, don't let perfect be the enemy of progress mm -hmm. because, you know, whoever you are, whether you're the woman who's put in the vegetable garden in her backyard or a person writing a novel or whatever, we make lots of bad things. Like that lady is going to plant some vegetables that are definitely going to die. But I want her to plant the dead vegetables so that eventually maybe some better ones will grow. So I don't even like thinking that what you have to make is good. I think what you have to make is something. And let that thing be as awful as it needs to be so that you can move past it. We have to make a lot, a lot of bad things before we get to make a good thing. And I think perfectionism prevents that process from happening. So I want to shift gears for a second and talk about your role as a teacher, because I find that the things that will help kids, I'm a parent of a 17 year old going on 18. I just actually gifted her. Cal Newport's book about how to be a, a rock star, whatever the high school student, because she's starting to apply for colleges. And Cal, that's where Cal started. Cal started writing about that stuff initially. I've got a son who's 12 going on. You know, he's in the middle of middle school. And time and time again, especially, you know, in the work that we do as productivity strategists, specialists, experts, whatever you want to call it, is we, people, they, this is the stuff that's not taught. Like it's not taught in schools. It's not taught in, it's not part of the curriculum. So my question for you is, how do you infuse this as a teacher? Because you know that it needs to be something that like time management, productivity they need to be, but it's once they leave, the bell isn't there for them anymore. You know, they're not being pointed. They have to point themselves in the right direction. So I'd love to get your thoughts on this because I think it's an area that really needs attention. Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll always do is I grind everything to a halt when I need to talk about something like that. Just yesterday, I was, I ground everything to a halt to talk to a student about forks in the road and which one you're going to take. And after I was done, one of my students said, while you were giving that life lesson to us and especially to Joe, 
you know, you used a word that I didn't understand. Could you explain it? And I thought how interesting it that she's recognizing I'm offering a life lesson, right? She recognized already that this guy stops the learning all the time to talk to us about stuff that is going to happen like outside the classroom and not really inside. So I think showing kids that this is more important than the math we're learning right now, that this is going to carry you further than understanding how exponents work. I think that's important. And the other thing I do is I tell kids stories all the time. And all the stories I tell my students or almost all the stories I tell are about my stumbles, my failures, my lessons learned. You know, the first day of school, the first lesson I tell or the first story I tell my students is about going off a diving board at a sixth grade pool party, not having tied my bathing suit before I hit the water. And the bathing suit was already a little big. So I, I left the bathing suit behind and I ended up in a swimming pool surrounded by my classmates completely naked. And, you know, a couple of years ago, a father called me and said, why are you telling my daughter about being naked in a swimming pool? And I said, it's likely that your daughter is going to encounter some moment of embarrassment or shame this year. She might even have her first period. It might even happen in my presence. And I'm letting her know that I understand what embarrassment and shame are like. And so when you encounter that moment, you can approach me and it happens all the time. Like kids just tell me stuff that is sort of unbelievable and sometimes heartbreaking and sometimes just shocking that they would share this, this personal information with me, which is often really helpful to me in terms of helping them. But kids won't trust you and kids won't believe in you and like take you in their hearts with them unless you share something of yourself. So my students hear about my life all the time and it's never, here's the great thing I did. It's here's the stupid thing I did and the lesson I learned from it. So the combination of those two things, prioritizing those lessons above all others, and then sharing enough of your own life that they believe in you and that what you're saying is true. That really has helped a lot. Before we wrap up, Matthew, I wanna ask you about what your thoughts are on the evolution of productivity over the past decade plus. I mean, we were in this era of getting things done, which I touched on at the beginning. Um, the idea of, I could see the look on your face. You're not, uh, everyone that's listening, I could see like, there's a look on it's like, Oh yes, it's ch-. like, there's a bit of a, <laughs> um, what, what do we get wrong about productivity now? Like what is, what is, I think there's fundamental problems with the way productivity is presented. And I don't think it's new. I think that these these have been going on for a long time, but the internet, you know, you talked about slowing down life hacks become a thing. And, and all of a sudden people are life hacking like crazy. Like there's a lot of um, fundamental issues with productivity in air quotes. What have you seen that's evolved and what do you think are probably the things that aren't getting addressed that need to either in a personal sense for people who are like one-on-one or in a larger, like organizational sense? I guess the things that bother me, two immediately come to mind. One is a sense of what productivity represents. So I have a client, for example, and she said, the actual goal I have is I want to watch all of the movies on the Criterion channel channel with my husband and have conversations about each one. She said, but that's not really productive. And I said, that's enormously productive. Like it's not what we view in this world today as what productivity looks like. But the hundred year old version of that woman is saying, yeah, watch the greatest films ever made with your husband on a couch, eating popcorn, connect with him and have a great conversation. But I think a lot of people don't perceive that both for themselves and for other people as being truly productive. So productivity is what I want from my life and what I want from my life in a thoughtful way. 
not in a, I am just doing this right now because there's a computer in my pocket and I have 10 minutes to kill. And there's a game on my computer that I will regret playing someday in my life, but not regret right now. That's a mistake. But making a thoughtful decision about what you see as a productive life, I think that's important. And I think we discount putting gardens in our backyards and watching films with our husbands. I think those are very, very valuable. The other mistake I think we make, and this is the one that makes me the most crazy is I hear a lot of people talk about productivity. And when I look into what they've actually done, it doesn't appear to me that they have done very much. I, I was talking to one of my wife's friends about a decade ago, and she said, I just finished a life coaching course in college. And I said, wow, that's great. Tell me about your life. And her life was basically, I just finished a life coach course in college. Like she had nothing underlying the education she just received. And so when I look at books and when I hear people and I see a TED talk, my first instinct is, I hope you've led a really productive life. I hope there's confirmable evidence that I'm hearing from someone who has mastered this skill before bringing it to the masses. And I think quite often we hear from people who have like great ideas that they figured out in a classroom somewhere, or, you know, they're clever and they pulled a lot of ideas together and gave it a really terrific title and a, a, a great twist on a new idea. But when I sort of dig deep and say, well, what did you do? They haven't done very much. So I think we really have to look at making sure we're hearing from people who are actually accomplishing things that are happy. I want happy people telling me how to you know, make my life better. The worst thing I can ever hear is a product, a productivity expert who says, well, life is, life is really hard. I don't want to hear that. Like <laughs> if life is really hard for you, you should not be talking to me about how to improve my life. So those two things I think would really help in terms of bringing people's ideas about productivity to a better place. Matthew, this has been a great conversation. I know we could have more conversations about the perils of being left-handed as well <laughs> yeah. as baseball. <laughs> I mean, you've been to, I mean, I, I care. You should brag about that, that feat. I know I at least would care about it. I'm watching the, uh, the playoffs right now as we, as we speak, um, where can you get the book someday is today and, and, uh, the other books you've written, you've written, you've written a lot. So where can people keep up with you and your work and pick up this book someday is today? Well, you can keep up with me at matthewdix.com and you can get my books wherever books are found. You know, I always say, go to an indie because those are the best bookstores in the world. And if they don't have my book, just ask for it and they will get it for you. Uh, but wherever you get your books, you can uh, find my books. Uh, they're not too hard to find. Matthew, thanks for having a productive conversation with me today. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Big thanks to Matthew for joining me on the program. See, you know, Code Monkey. Code Monkey. Such a great song. Download it. Uh, if you're on Spotify right now, you should download that song. After you're done subscribing to this podcast, because that's one way you can help the show. Maybe you're listening on Apple Podcasts. You can do it there as well. Overcast, wherever you are listening to this podcast, hit the subscribe button. That way you don't miss a single episode, including episode 454, which is the next episode to come featuring Chris Bailey, my friend Chris Bailey, the author of Hyperfocus, uh, The Productivity Project, and his latest book, which we'll get to during that conversation. By the way, if you want to catch all the show notes and figure out all the fun stuff that Matthew and I talked about, go to productivityist.com slash podcast 453 to make that happen. And if you want to help the show in another way, you can visit our sponsors page and that way you can support the sponsors that you heard 
during this episode. Just go to productivityist.com slash podcast sponsors to check them out and let them know that I sent you. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me today on this fun episode. I had a blast. I hope you did too. I'm Mike Vardy, the host of A Productive Conversation, reminding you to stop doing productive and start being productive. See you later.